Sometimes you just need a quick overview of the news. Other times you need a deeper understanding of what's going on. The Rundown Podcast has all of that, and it's Chicago-based, so you know what's up in your neighborhood and across town. Listen to The Rundown wherever you get your podcasts. This WBEZ podcast is supported by Hacia, whose Executive Fellows Program provides Black and Latinx business owners with real-world tools and strategies needed to master fundamental management concepts related to company stability and growth. Registrants learn through one-on-one executive coaching sessions with subject matter experts in the areas of finance, business development, operations, and legal. More info at HACIAWorks.org. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. A major milestone in the decades-long push to extend the red line into more neighborhoods on the far south side. The federal government approved $2 billion for the project. Now, the money will help create four new red line stops at 103rd and 111th Streets, Michigan Avenue near 116th Street, and 130th Street, connecting tens of thousands of Chicagoans to the L system for the first time. Construction is expected to begin in 2025. We turn to community leaders now to discuss the potential impact here. Andrea Reed is executive director of the Greater Roseland Chamber of Commerce. Reverend Otis Moss III is senior pastor of Trinity United Church of Christ in Washington Heights. And Cheryl Johnson is executive director of People for Community Recovery, an environmental justice organization based in Altgeld Gardens. Andrea started us off by sharing her reaction to having those federal dollars approved for this project. It's about time. Um, I've been a part of the um, transportation situation in our community since 2009. And um, we've seen things start and we've seen things come to an abrupt end because there was no funding. Um, and of course, it, I've always thought that it was um, uh, <coughs> gross negligence that transportation was cut off at 95th Street. Mm. And um, after reading the cost of segregation studies through the Metropolitan Planning Council, I realized and learned that it was done uh, intentionally. So um, that's heartbreaking. So ever since I've been, I've been on this, uh, this trail to, to fight um, so that transportation is equitable accessible, affordable, and seamless. And it should be that way throughout, this, throughout, the, throughout our city. Mm-hmm. Tell us more about Roseland and, and its current transit options. Like, how are people getting around? Um, well, they're not getting around very well. Um, you know, you always, I jokingly say that um, the Greyhound bus can get you to 95th Street faster than the number 34. Um, you got one bus. That, that goes through one, um, one area mm-hmm. that um, people have to depend on. And if they miss that bus, and let's say they're on their way to work or doctor's appointment, specifically for those that have to get to a job, if they miss that bus, they just might miss the opportunity to uh, continue to keep that job. Yeah. So um, That's tough. Yeah, that is tough. And, and it shouldn't be that way. Um, there should be more... Um, access, better access to uh, job opportunities, especially when we know that most of the jobs exist um, north of us. 
Reverend Moss, your, your church sits not too far from that 95th Street stop on the red line, which is the end of the line as it's as it stands today. So what is the first thing that comes to mind for you when you think of the trains continuing from there into the hundreds, all the way to 130th? I believe the vision is, is good. The question is the implementation and the practice. Uh, will the community benefit? And part of the challenge for the city, for the state, and, and for the federal government is many times we plan without the people, and we should plan with the people. So who will receive those contracts? Who will be working to build the red line? Mm. From the major contractors to the subcontractors, will we have a system in place of interns for returning citizens? What will be the environmental impact? Will we plan with the people or will the planners plan without the people and say, here's your plan? That becomes the challenge and the problem. And that's where we are focused to ensure that it is a plan where the people are centered in the development. So far, do you feel like that's been happening? No. <laughs> so so uh, there has been a tradition, and the tradition that I'm speaking of is in terms of segre uh, segregating and quote-unquote redlining, and we have the red line, right. uh, where the Department of Planning will make a plan for people on the south side and then say, here is your plan. I'll give you a prime example. Uh, on 95th Street, there was a plan... Uh, for, for a viaduct that they didn't communicate with anybody in, in Washington Heights whatsoever. They met with 27 people out of 27,000. And so the church commissioned a, a planning study uh, to find out what the community desired, mm -hmm. and they did not want a viaduct. Uh, they, Interesting. <laughs> they said we would like access to grocery stores. We would like wider sidewalks. And many of the seniors in the community did not want to walk under a viaduct. They felt it was dangerous. Again, that's, a, that's an example of planning without the people. Right. But when the people were involved, they then laid out, here's what you can do. Let's design the sidewalks this way. Let's design the bike lanes this way. Who's going to be the contractors? They raised all these wonderful questions. And so we submitted that to the city. Mm -hmm. I said, you did 27 people. We did over 1,500 people in the community who came out to community meetings to raise the question of what do we want our community to look like. Let's bring you in here, Cheryl. I mean, when we think about potential and opportunities that this could create, I'm curious what's on the top of mind for you. Is it jobs? Is it access to education? Is it something else? Yeah. Um, I look at this as opportunity for economic development for my area because we are isolated area. We are desert in all areas in all level of uh, desert you could talk about. So just having the opportunity to bring, to have a stop right there in 130th Street mm -hmm. is going to create something that we don't even have in our community, like a small cafe, coffee cafe, you know, or, you know, where the, I'm looking at the transit order development of the funds that we can leverage to do economic development. Because once you do have economic development in your community, guess what? It's going to create jobs. Right. You're going to need people. And, and sticking with you, for folks listening now who aren't familiar, Cheryl, tell us more about Altgeld Gardens. What should we know? What's the community like? Who lives there? And, and the transit options that you have today. Um, Altgeld Gardens is one of the four public houses that was ever built in the United States back in the 1940s. It was built for the returning veteran, World War II veterans. Um, Allgale Gardens used to have 1,900 units 
in it and used to have a small it used to be a small contained community mm-hmm. where all we had all the resources that was needed to sustain ourselves over the years that transition has changed especially when the steel mill closed because during the time when I grew up in Argyle Gardens my brothers and many people transitioned to working over there in the steel industry but once that closed it changed the economic status of all girls and not just all girls the whole Riverdale community area mm-hmm. so Reverend your your parishioners who live south of 95th are they excited by this plan they by this money <clears throat> I think there's there's a level of excitement and suspicion <laughs> so we know that mm-hmm. the vision for this is good mm-hmm. but the su- suspicion runs in terms of the track record of the city of the state and federal government being able to include the people. And that will be uh, the true uh, fight. And it doesn't have to be a fight. It's, yeah. it's pretty practical. Uh, we, we've, we've seen it done before in, 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 in a variety of senses. We've done it at the church when we did the uh, assist in the development of the Carter G. Woodson Library. Uh, the community came together and we said, this is what we desire. Uh, we want uh, to make sure there's a black contractor, make sure it's green. We're using returning citizens and let's build a beautiful library. And as a result, we have one of the five star libraries on the south side of Chicago. Mm-hmm. It's not rocket science. It just takes political will and the moral compass to do it. So your organization, Andrea, it's focused on economic and community development, as, as you, you mentioned. And we know that transit stops, they're often, um, you know, hubs in the community, right? So you'll have restaurants, as Cheryl was mentioning before, coffee shops, other small businesses will set up nearby. So what do you think that new red line stops at 103rd and 111th could mean for business in the area? Well, it definitely will help to, to spark um, economic development and, and attraction. But I, I like to take it a step further. The one thing that um, is missing in this conversation is the historic presence of our community. Um, not just Pullman, but also Roseland. And, you know, I always say, you know, we talk about Pullman being historic. Um, Roseland was once known as the jewel of the South Side. It was a shopping mecca. People would come from all over the world to go to the Gailey's People Store, mm-hmm. the, the Ranch Steakhouse, which is now called the Ware Ranch Steakhouse, um, Old Fashioned Donuts. And one of the things I've learned in, in, in my research is that um, historic places, people love to come and see. That will in itself be an attraction to bring people from outside of our community to visit. And that will drive economic, uh, economic impact not just for the, the residents, but for the people that want to come and see what is this place called Roseland, mm-hmm. where it was once known as, um, you know, this, this place where people, um, well, they call it the Wild Hundreds, which I, I don't The like. Wild Hundreds? The Wild Hundreds. I don't like that terminology. It's a, it's a beautiful place, and there, there's, there's pride of ownership. There are people that have lived there for, for decades, and um, there are beautiful homes there. There are homes that are present in Roseland that have the same architect of, of the, some of the homes that are built in Rogers Park that are worth a half a million. 
you know, same architect, same yeah. house. But in, in Roseland, it's valued differently. So that value can be brought back. And uh, I think every community should have a story to tell. And mm -hmm. well, people, you have people that live there. And th lives are precious. So we need to consider uh, looking at every community and valuing it and showing its assets. Cheryl, 130th Street is now going to be the, the last stop on the line. So, you know, look out for me 10 or 20 years, right, and talk more about your hope for the role that the stop plays in the community and, and what it all looks like in your mind's eye. Well, what I look at this is that it opened up other transportational modes that is needed, particularly with buses. You know, in my neighborhood, uh, I'm a mile away from for a motor company. Mm -hmm. I remember walking it, it took me 18 minutes to walk, less than 10 to ride on my bike, five minutes in a car. But to use public transportation, it takes two buses and a six-block walk to get to Ford Motor Company. And people can't see us right on now. Everyone started shaking their heads when you said that. On 130th in Torrance Avenue. Yeah. So this, we're having a discussion with them to open it up from Halsted all the way to Torrance Avenue, just straight down, cause straight down the road. Mm -hmm. Straight down part of the street that has been named after my mother, Hazel Johnson, Yes. E.J. White. You Absolutely. know, so having those different routes and the fact that now a child can go from Ogier Gardens to Loyola University on one route. Yeah. That's, that's excellent. And to see uh, those opportunities that exist in our community that never have existed before. I mean, speaking of your mother, right, People for Community Recovery was started by her back in 1979. Uh, she was known as the mother of the modern environmental justice movement, Hazel Johnson. Do you see potential positive environmental impacts yes. having more transit options? This opportunity has opened up doors where we're next door to the Forest Preserve. And we also take honor in having the only Underground Railroad designation in our community. So we're looking at our community as more of a tourism area, yeah. you know. So there's a lot of conversation. There's a lot of development. But the most missing ingredients to these development is like the Reverend said, the people. We have to get our people in tune and engaged. But because of the disinvestment of so many decades, you know, it's going to take a whole lot to bring confidence because I tell you, living in public health, people are trained. People got certificates. People got degrees and are not working. You know, so we have to ensure that these, there, these conversations and these policies and these developments that we sitting at those tables too. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, and that, you know, here again, I'm going to continue to see other people working in my neighborhood when my neighborhood is not working. Yeah. Environmental stewardship, Reverend, you, you don't just preach it, you practice it, right? And I'm thinking of that green roof that you put on your church, for instance. What role can transit play in creating a sustainable community? Well, I think that transportation is connected to opportunity and transformation. And one, uh, anything that we do uh, has to make sure that it has 
recognize not only environmental impact, uh, but will also have an environmental framework of how it will be done. There are ways in which we can do development uh, that will allow it to be, quote, green. So I believe that this development should be black, should be green, and should be liberating. Uh, so what materials do we use? Uh, what plants do we uh, place down after we tear up some things? What's fascinating is that in the state of Illinois, when you do a development, they import trees from other states. Mm -hmm. we, we do have trees in Illinois. I want people to know that. You know, <laughs> you, you actually can utilize trees in Illinois. I've seen them. Yes, yes. They're, they're, out, there. they're, they're out there. But yet we import plants from, from other spaces, which then creates another problem. We end up bringing particular insects into a community that traditionally were not there. So then all of a sudden you have these issues with local trees because we planted foreign trees that brought in particular insects into the community. Mm -hmm. Just little things like that can be transformative. Will we use uh, permeable pavers becomes a question because we already have challenges with what? Flooding. Mm -hmm. So by utilizing permeable pavers transforms things. Utilizing rain barrels in community transforms things. So there needs to be an environmental framework or even an environmental officer to raise questions. And then on top of that, when we do things in a green manner, let us raise the question about who will be working in reference to those issues. What do you think, Andrea? I, I totally agree. And um, the, uh, the big fight that I have on my shoulders that, that keeps me up at night is that with all of this infrastructure and all these dollars that are coming into our community, um, we want to make sure that uh, those jobs are beneficial to those that, that live in the community. You know, one of the challenges that, that I see, and I've done my homework, a lot of our business owners commute to our area. And when they leave, I mean, we welcome them. Mm -hmm. However, when they leave at 7 o'clock and close their doors, all the revenue that has been earned in the community leaves the community. So I always say, yeah, it leaves with them. And when I look at their communities and where they live, it's a stark difference in, in, in where, what we're stuck with. So, you know, we might as well have tumbleweed rolling through the neighborhood. What feeds our um, tax base? What, what feeds economic development mm -hmm. if there's no resources. There's no money there. Well, let's hear from all of you on this because there are a ton of potential positive impacts as we've discussed for this project. But let's be real. A transit line alone won't be able to solve every problem or address every need. We have a new mayor in office, right? So, so Andrea, you first. What would you like Brandon Johnson to prioritize when it comes to community development and when it comes to the far south side? One of the things that's blaring in my face is that one of the barriers is job training facilities. The jobs that are going to be created will require um, people to have union um, experience, to be, to, to be able to have a program where they can get their apprentice training locally. Transportation is a barrier, right? So why not? And we know that all of the apprentice training programs are in the suburbs. 
So why not have an apprentice training facility in Roseland? That will that will that will change a lot of things in my opinion. Yeah. Training. Yeah. Uh Cheryl, the Johnson administration's still coming together. The mayor says he's not going to rush on making key appointments. We're seeing him so, sort of slowly fill some of these positions. Uh, he says he's not going to try anything too outside the box for this first budget. But what is your advice to Brandon Johnson on, on meeting the needs of Algal Gardens? Well, one of the things I want to just piggyback on what she said, yes, we need training. We need training in our communities because PCR been doing training for over 30 years in the environmental field. From underground storage tank to lay the best of new, I mean, mold remediation, all those things, hazmat and everything. Our challenge is, is being sustainable in our own community with this type of program because we have no space. So two years ago, CPS was decided to demolish the school and put a playground in this place. Mm -hmm. We stopped that demolition. So we are proposing a 38,000 square foot building to be utilized as the Hazel Johnson Environmental Training and Sustainability Institute to be directly in our community to talk about okay. what she talking about because uh, our community have this, we have tremendous space. We at the end of city limits with a lot of open, a lot of land. Lot mm -hmm. of land. So we're putting together a community land trust committee to look at so that we can protect the land and make sure that the land remains in our community. Because one of the things, one of the major things that we are concerned about is gentrification as a result. Because we got 19 miles of waterways around. There's a lot of development around mm -hmm. the waterways. You know, and just as I mentioned, Algel is historical also. Yeah. It's been designated. Then we got the Underground Railroad. And then we got the African American Water Trail. There's a lot of entities, there's a lot of development that is happening, but it has to be inclusive of the community. Yeah. So that's why we're trying to develop a committee to sustain our community. So I say to our mayor, just make sure that our community don't be gentrified as a result of any of these mm -hmm. uh, development that's happening in our area. Take us home, Reverend. I mean, what do you think this new administration could do to, to make sure that communities that saw little to no investment for decades, that they're now prioritized and, and taken care of? It's interesting that the city of Chicago, after the Chicago fire, created a, a, a strategic plan on how to build Chicago once again after a fire. Well, those of us on the south and, and west side, uh, we have been resting in, in the embers of a segregated fire, of a racially polarized fire. And there can be a strategic plan, the transportation artery of the red line can be the artery that can bring new blood into the south side. But as was already stated, we don't want gentrification. We believe in renaissance. Mm -hmm. Just like the Harlem Renaissance, we want to see the south side renaissance. And the red line can be the artery to bring the necessary nutrients on the south side and we can celebrate the way that we did in the 1940s and other times of history. We'll leave it there. We've been talking with a panel of guests about the extension of the red line. The long-awaited project reached a big milestone Friday when the federal government pledged $2 billion. Now, construction is expected to start in 2025. Our guests were Andrea Reed from the Greater Roseland Chamber of Commerce, Reverend Otis Moss III from Trinity United Church of Christ, and Cheryl Johnson from People for Community Recovery. Thank you all so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 
This episode of Reset was produced by Dan Tucker, who also edited the podcast with Brenda Ruiz. If you're subscribed to the Reset podcast, well, first of all, we appreciate you. But we'd also appreciate if you would share our show with a friend. Personal recommendations are still the best way to support the show. That'll do it for Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. I'll chat with you later today. If you need a break from the news, WBEZ's Nerd Up podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts.